This morning, I want us to open up to Mark 8, and turn with me to Mark 8, verse 1, and we will be going through verse 21. Mark 8 says this, In those days, when again a crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called to his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days, and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from afar. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you, do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and he said, and he had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about four thousand people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went into the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side of the sea. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Have you eyes but do not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke five loaves for 5,000, how many baskets full or broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we see that the disciples who have been with Jesus for so long still do not understand. But I fear that there are many things that I do not understand, and I fear that there are many things that we do not understand. Even though we have heard your word so many times, we have heard beautiful songs sang, and yet we still do not understand. Still, many times, we prioritize what you give us over you. Still, many times, we prioritize knowledge and intellectual strength and being viewed as holy over truly knowing you. And oftentimes, we look to our own ability and our own strength to provide for ourselves instead of looking to you and looking to your provision and looking to the God who provides for us. God, I ask that we would not misunderstand any longer. I ask that we would understand that you are the true treasure, the true gift, that you are the true end of all scripture, and we should submit to you. And Lord, I ask that we would see that you are our inheritance. Heaven is not our inheritance, you are. 
This church, as great as it is, is not our inheritance. You are. Family, as wonderful of a gift it is, it is not our inheritance. You are. Lord, help us to know that. Bind these truths upon our heart to this text. We love and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this text is a contrast to the text that we read last week. Last week, we were finishing up Mark 7, where we had a woman, actually, sorry, some men, that was the text before. We had some men bring a man who was deaf and mute to Jesus, and Jesus healed the man. Jesus allowed the man to speak and allowed the man to hear, and then the men, in seeing this, and the great crowds in seeing this, they said, look at Jesus. One of the best phrases we've heard about Jesus he who has done all things well. And we talked about what that meant and the ramifications of it and how it's a wonderful truth. But when we look at this text, and maybe some of you noticed it, the disciples are falling quite short of one being people who are going to do things well and also understand him who has done all things well. You can see that at the very end in verse 21 when Jesus is questioning them, Do you not yet understand? Something about the disciples is still struggling in them. It's troubling them. Something that they still do not get. Something that they cognitively, spiritually even, that they truly do not understand about Jesus at this point. Even though there's been many mighty miracles, there's been many mighty works performed in front of them, they do not understand. And we have to ask this question to this text from that very end. Why is it, or what is it about Jesus that they do not understand? And it's interesting to think about that the Gentiles were the ones in chapter 7 who were able to point out, this is he who has done all things well. But the disciples and then even the Pharisees, the religious of the religious, are the ones who are completely misunderstanding Jesus. They're missing him. He's going right by them. And they're missing the purpose of his ministry. But I want to say, we have the same danger of being in here. I have especially the same danger of being here. Of reading his word every week, studying his word diligently, preaching his word. And we could see great miracles and wonders and works of God. But this verse, in verse 21, do you not yet understand? I think could equally be said of us. And so we want to ask with great attentiveness, what is it that we could be missing? What is it that the disciples are misunderstanding about Jesus? And so let's raise that question. It's one of the questions we're going to ask. What is it that we are misunderstanding? What is it the disciples are misunderstanding about Jesus? And we're going to see three things that they're going to be misunderstood, that they're going to be misunderstood, or that are going to be misunderstood. Sorry. And how it's going to be framed is through three questions. The first question is going to be this. How can one feed these people? The second question is going to be, why does this generation seek a sign? And the last question that we will see, which is a synopsis of many questions, do you not yet understand? So let's start off in Mark 8. Mark 8 is a new story, but it's a familiar narrative that almost we've seen before. Mark 8 begins with Jesus traveling along the sea, showing up on some land, and a great crowd comes to him. And you'll notice Jesus' reaction. It's very similar to the story we saw in Mark 6. Jesus sees the crowds, he sees that they're hungry, and it says that he has great 
compassion for them. And I love to think about that idea of Jesus having great compassion for this crowd because it shows his tender love and care for sinners that even the people who are going to put him to the cross, he says, I yearn for them. I love them. And some of you will remember this from Mark 6, back when Jesus said, I have compassion for them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. And out of Jesus' compassion flows a wanting to meet their needs. And he sees that these people are hungry. And he says, I can't send them away. I need to feed them. But the disciples, they come up to him. And this is a very strange question. I want you to think about what they asked Jesus and why they would ask him this. How can anyone feed all these people, Jesus? Now, we'll come back to that question and why it's an unusual question. It seems very common. It seems like a question we would expect. But in the flow of the narrative, in Mark, it's unusual. We'll come back to it. Jesus, he says, well, go and find what loaves you have. And so they say, okay, we got seven loaves. He's like, good, go find some fish. They find a few fish. And we've already seen what Jesus can do with a few loaves and a few fish. And Jesus supernaturally, miraculously, I don't think this is a spiritual metaphor, physically feeds 4,000 people. And he feeds them. And we see right there, Jesus' compassion flows out of him. Now, a quick note for us to think about this narrative. Some people, in viewing this narrative, right along with Mark 6, they see it as a repetition. And some scholars and theologians thinking that it's a repetition of the other narrative say, eh, it didn't actually happen. This is rather just a retelling of the former narrative. But I just want to say, I think what some scholars do with this passage is actually misunderstand the purpose of it. The purpose of this narrative is not so much about what Jesus is doing. The purpose about this narrative is about where Jesus is at. What do you mean, Brother Robert? Last time Jesus performed this miracle in Mark 6, he was among a bunch of Jews. He was showing that he was the Messiah to come. He was showing that he was the God of Israel who reigned above. He was showing that he was the one who gave them manna in the wilderness. But right here, he's no longer among the Jews. He's among the Decapolis, which is Gentile people, pagans, people who would not be considered involved in the kingdom of God, people who would not be considered a part of God's covenant people, people who would, the Jews would think, that person can't be saved. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is saying, the same miracle that I performed over there for the Jews is the same miracle I'm going to perform over here for the Gentiles. The same way that I'm going to save the Jews and I'm going to feed them and I'm going to be their God is the same way that I'm going to be God to the Gentiles. And why does he have to say this? Well, he doesn't want the Gentiles thinking that they're a bunch of dogs. Some of you get that reference. Back a few verses ago, Jesus He was talking to a Syrophoenician woman and the woman comes up to him and says, Jesus, my daughter's really sick. Can you heal her? And Jesus says this statement that is very offensive. The children eat first, not the dogs. But then the Syrophoenician woman comes back and she says, ah, but even the dogs get to eat the crumbs. And here you see Jesus says, I'm not only gonna give you crumbs, Gentiles, and this is good because you're all Gentiles. I don't think there's any Jews in here. You're all Gentiles, Jesus isn't just giving crumbs to the Gentiles. Jesus is giving bread and an abundance of bread, leftover bread for the Gentiles. 
so that as Galatians 3.28 says, as a Jew is the same as a Gentile, as a man is the same as a woman, as a slave man is the same as a free man, we are all one in Christ. Jesus Christ reconciles all people together. It's a beautiful picture of how Jesus reconciles everybody of all tribes, all nations, all peoples to himself so that among Jew and Gentile, there's no distinction. The dividing wall of hostility that was between races, ethnicities is broken down in Christ. And he says, come eat. And Jesus wants to offer that free gift. Come eat to whoever from wherever. But I told you, the disciples, they got hung up on something. And I don't think that narrative is put there just to show Jesus' miracle. I think the narrative is really there to show the disciples, they're missing something. So look back at that verse four with me if you would. The disciples, they hear what Jesus is going to do and they say, how is this possible? 4,000 people, we can't feed them. There is no way this can take place. Now, sometimes when people see this, they begin to think, well, the disciples, the reason why they're saying this is because they had forgotten about what Jesus had done back in Mark 6. Remember Jesus who was feeding the 5,000? And it wasn't just 5,000. It was 20,000 people actually because we found out there was 5,000 men and they had children and women with them. So it was really the feeding of the 20,000. And some people think, well, the disciples, the reason they're questioning Jesus, the reason they're misunderstanding Jesus, it's because they forgot. But I want to tell you, they didn't forget. I don't think the disciples have forgotten one sign here in the book of Mark. I don't think they've forgotten one miracle. And actually, I know they haven't forgotten the sign because if you look down in Mark 8, verse 19, Jesus is going to ask them, how many loaves did I have left over from the 5,000 people I fed? And they say, 12. Now, if the disciples can remember the leftovers, they can remember the sign. So, The reason why the disciples are asking the question is not, I want to negate this. The reason why the disciples are asking the question is not because they don't remember the miracle. The reason why the disciples are asking the question, who can feed these people, is because they forgot the miracle worker. The disciples, in seeing all the miracles, and they've seen lots of miracles performed, whether it's healing people, raising the dead, they've seen lepers cleansed, all these things done, blind men receive their sight. What I think the disciples have been focused on the whole time is I think they've been focused more on the miracles, the acts, the events, than actually the one, and you can notice this in your text, who is it that can do these things? They have completely forgotten about who Jesus is. They have set their eyes, they have set their minds completely on the events, on the miracles, on the things that Jesus does rather than who Jesus is. And I think this is true because even if we remember back in Mark 6, 
after Jesus performs the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus sends the men out on the boat in the Sea of Galilee, and then Jesus intends to go up to them, and he walks by them, but then he comes to them in the boat, and they are afraid, and they're nervous, and Jesus says, I who speak to you am he, and it says the wind ceased, and it obeyed him, and then it says, and they were startled because they did not understand the loaves. What was the point of understanding the loaves? The point of understanding the loaves and the point of this miracle is not to see Jesus' miracles and just say, wow, that's amazing. Even though, wow, it is amazing. I need you us to understand this and I need you to keep with me. The point of the miracles is to see that Jesus is amazing. The problem for the disciples, I think, to this point, and you're going to see it even open up greater in the narrative, is they're able to look and see the miracles and say, wow, those are awesome, we love those things. But they have actually forgotten about the miracle worker. They've actually forgotten about Jesus. What they've done is they've begun to treasure up, to value, to cherish, to love, to let their affections be drawn to the things that Jesus does and not Jesus actually himself. What has happened is they have fallen in love with more of the things that Jesus gives them, like bread, more than the things that Jesus actually is and who he actually is. Let me give you a quick analogy of how we can think about this. We've all been around, or maybe we've been, that person who is more interested in someone or maybe is more interested in us for the things that they can give them or for the things that they have more than for the person that person is. You know what I'm talking about? Here's what I'm talking about. When I was in junior high, I had a friend, and I think he was a true friend. This friend of mine, he loved hanging out with me. But just coincidence, he loved hanging out with me at my house. Now, in junior high, I had a great house. We were on a lake. We could go fishing. We'd go swimming. We'd go boating. There was woods behind us that we could have airsoft wars and paintball wars at. It was awesome. We had a big yard, trampoline. It was great. And then, of course, we had a big TV downstairs with a PS3. They probably don't even have PS3s anymore. What do they have, PS5s? What do they have, Will? Whatever. <laughs> so we had everything, right? And he loved coming over, hanging out with me. And the more we began to hang out, I would kind of like ask him, like, you know, he would keep wanting to hang out. And I'd be like, well, do you want to go to your house this weekend? And somehow throughout that conversation, he would always work it into, let's go to your house. Let's go to your house. Let's go to your place. And I remember even in conversations around friends, he would begin to talk about hanging out with me, but he would never really talk about me. He would say, man, I love going to Robert's house. We get to go swimming. We get to go in the boats. Get to go on the trampoline, stay up late, eat whatever. And I mean, I love the house. It was a great house, right? But what was my friend in junior high really interested in? He was really enjoying the things that I could give to him. And in some ways, while well, yes, we were friends, he was just more in the product of me. I think that same analogy is actually what's happened right here for the disciples. I think it's actually what happens a lot of times in Christianity. I think it's very true that this is what the church in many ways has become. It's become a congregation of people who love the things that Jesus gives to them. 
like bread, but do not actually cherish, do not actually love, do not truly enjoy Jesus himself. One other text, just to add on to this emphasis, that I think just nails it down in the coffin of why they're asking the question. It comes from John 6. This is one of my favorite texts. John 6 is the text of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in John's narrative, obviously in John. And the crowd comes to Jesus after he feeds the 5,000. And Jesus asks them, why are you following me? And they're kind of stunned and they don't really know what to say. And Jesus says, you don't have to answer, I'll answer for you, as Jesus always does. He says, you're feeding me not because you saw signs, which in the book of John, if you see signs, you're supposed to believe in the signs that Jesus is the son of God and that by believing you'll have life in his name. That's John 20, verse 31. You'll do that. You'll see the signs. You'll believe you'll have life. He says, you're not following me because you saw signs. You're following me because you ate your fill of the loaves. What's he saying? That's Jesus' response back to what happened in Mark 6 and John 6. And the reason why the disciples are sitting here scratching their heads wondering who can feed these people is because the whole time they've been more delighting in the signs, they've been more delighting in the things that Jesus can give them than Jesus himself. And brothers and sisters, I fear that Christianity will do the same thing. Christianity will fall short of actually realizing who Jesus is, treasuring him, knowing him, and said we'll just enjoy what he gives us. You say, Brother Robert, what do you mean? Here's what I mean. I could be wrong in this, but I don't think I am. I think a lot of people, I won't say a majority, but I think a lot of people want to believe in Jesus because they just don't want to go to hell. And you say, well, yeah, duh, who wants to go to hell? I'm not saying you should want to go to hell or anything like that. But what I'm talking about is an order. I'm talking about a ranking in what you delight in, what you enjoy, why you're actually following Jesus. And I'm going to tell you right now, if the motor, if the motivation, if it's what your purpose in is following Jesus is just not to go to hell, just because you want clean skin and you don't want to die for eternity, you don't actually want Jesus. You just want bread. Like these guys. Brothers and sisters, the miracles. The miracles are for the purpose of, yes, seeing them, but what they're supposed to do is you see them and they work like a beam that points up to Jesus and you see Jesus and you say, wow, the God who gave me these miracles, Jesus the Savior who gave these miracles, I rejoice in him and I enjoy him and I love him. Brothers and sisters, We cannot just have Jesus as a sidekick. A lot of times, we bring Jesus along into our life and we say, wow, Jesus will make my life better, make my family better, give me more peace, stability, tradition, whatever. No. Jesus is the ends. Jesus is the telos. He's the purpose of all existence. And we need to enjoy him, to love him, not just the things he gives to us. If we don't, 
I'll say this. We'll be sitting the rest of our Christian life scratching our heads. Like verse 4. Where's the bread going to come from? Because we're looking always back to past events instead to the God who is above and the God who should be our joy and our delight. So what are the disciples misunderstanding? I'll say it this way. Jesus did not come to give bread, but to be bread. Jesus came to be our delight, our satisfaction. That'll be expounded on even later. And so that's the first thing that they will misunderstand. Now, the narrative is going to take a halt. And we've talked about these halts in the narrative sometimes. What happens in the book of Mark is there's these Markan sandwiches where you have the bread, you have the meat, and then you have the bread. And what you see is that the bread is exactly the same. So the bread's going to be about the disciples and Jesus, but in the meat, it's going to be something different. And that's what happens in verses 11 through 13. And we see Jesus, he travels along the sea and he arrives in another place and some Pharisees come to him. So we're in the meat now. And the Pharisees, they're coming to him and we can remember who the Pharisees are. They're the religious elite. They're the people who have all the traditions. Everybody looks up to them. Everybody follows them. If anybody's got it together, it's the Pharisees. In addition to this, they're the scholars. They're the ones who know the law. There is some 620 laws in the Torah. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. And you know how many of those these Pharisees would have memorized? All of them. These are the intellectual religious elite of the day. Who is going to challenge these people? And they come to Jesus as what can sometimes see as an honest, sincere attempt to know Jesus. But I want to make it very clear, they are not coming to know Jesus. And Jesus is going to have a question that's going to describe them and who they are and sometimes of our attempt to know Jesus. Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to notice, argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, how is it that the Pharisees are coming to Jesus? Are they coming to Jesus and saying, hey, will you show us a miracle? And I just want to be like, what do you mean show us a miracle? He just fed 4,000 people. He just caused a blind man to see He just raised a person up from the dead and we can keep going back and back and back. What do you mean a sign? They're not coming looking for the Messiah. They're coming with an ax to grind. They're coming to argue. They're coming to fight. They're not wanting to meet with Jesus. They're wanting to prove their point. And remember, they're the religious elite. They're the scholars of their day. And Jesus is really spoiling that stuff for them. And so what do they want? They want to get Jesus out of here. They want to disprove Jesus. Now, can you work with someone like this? (laughs) I'm sure many of us have tried to work with someone like this. I'm sure some of us have actually been this person. I know in my time of being Christian, I've been this person. I remember my time in college when I first began to get into theology And sometimes you will meet people who first begin to get into theology and they get really passionate about it. And they usually start reading a bunch of books. And I think that's good. But they get really passionate about it and they have all these opinions and they start trying to make their opinions and they try to tell everybody what their opinion is on everything. And that was me. 
And I remember one time in this great zeal and this great passion for theology in the Bible, I was on a mission trip with my college pastor. And we were discussing this aspect of theology. It was about the atonement, which I won't get into the intricacies of that. And I was discussing his viewpoint and my viewpoint. And I kept coming at him saying, hey, this is what I think, and this is what this verse says. And I was reading all these books. I was like, this is what this author says. This is what this author says. And so that's what it says. And he would, for a while, keep coming back to me and said, well, this is my opinion. Here's me. And we'd go back. I'd say, hey, this is my opinion. This is my view. And not, he'd come back at me. And eventually, it just turned into, this is my view. This is my opinion. And this is what the author says. Until one point, and this is basically what Jesus says, he said, Robert, I'm done arguing. Why? Because it didn't matter. When Pharisees or someone who's religiously zealous, and I love people who are you know, zealous about Jesus, I love it, come just with an opinion to prove themselves with an ax to grind, their heart is already set on what they believe. There's nothing changing that person. And it's as though Jesus says to these people, he sighs deeply, and I imagine it's a sigh of disappointment where he's just thinking, you know all the scriptures, but yet you don't know that they tell about me. He sighs deeply. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Why is Jesus not going to give them a sign? It's like my college pastor said to me, I'm done arguing. And Jesus remembers an instance, I think, right here in his mind, back in Mark 3, when formerly Jesus had dealt with the Pharisees. He walked in the temple one day, and the Pharisees were watching him, and they saw a man with a withered hand. So we talk about the man with the withered hand, how it probably had some sort of disease on it. And they were all watching to see what Jesus was going to do. And Jesus asked the Pharisees the question, which is better, to give life or to take it, to kill or to heal? And the Pharisees, they don't know what to say. And Jesus, it's almost the same statement, felt sorrow in his heart and grieved at their hardness of heart. From Mark 3 to Mark 8, their hearts have not changed. Their hearts came in bent against Jesus where they said, I'm not buying it. I'm not accepting it. I'm not dealing with it. I'm going to make my point and I'm not listening to him. And Jesus, while there is always the free offer of the gospel, if we repent and come to him, is saying, it's basically the kingdom is shut to these people. As long as people say, I'm coming to Jesus on my own terms, on my own, by my own ability, by the way that I want to, the kingdom will be shut. Jesus sees that for these religious zealots, for these religious Pharisees who want everything to be their own way with their own opinions, with their actions to grind, they're not going to get a sign. And this is important for us, especially in the church. One for maybe some of you. Maybe some of you don't know Jesus. And maybe some of you came in here walking into this room and saying, I'm not believing. No matter what. 
No matter what. It's just like the Pharisees. It doesn't matter what he says. It doesn't matter what he does. I'm not buying into him because he would actually change my life and things would have to be different. And for the religious elite, they wouldn't get to be the religious elite anymore. They'd be servants of the Most High God. They'd be stewards of his kingdom. But for us as well as Christians, I think about back in my, I'm still very zealous. As I get really passionate, you guys can tell. (laughs) Amen. But for me back when I would say I was probably overly zealous and I probably should have been put in some sort of theological cage where I wouldn't have been able to touch anyone for a while, we need to be humble. I needed to be humbled. And what I really needed is what we all need, is we need a submission to God's word and a humility to coming to this thing. Not that, and I'm going to do this, not that does this, puts the Bible on the ground and says, this is what the Bible says and it's going to mean what I want it to mean. That's what happens a lot of time with people who get really religiously zealous. It means whatever I want it to mean. Instead, so what we should do is we should just lift the Bible up and say, whatever this Bible says, I'm going to listen to it. I'm going to adhere to it. That's why I love saying Isaiah 40 verse 8 before we preach before we dive into the scriptures. Because this thing should be held high above us. And when our our lives come in tension with this, and we find out that we're in opposition to this, we shouldn't, we don't actually do this, but this is basically what we do, cut out pieces of the Bible. Put it below us and say, that's not what it actually means. It means what I want it to mean. No, we should actually hold it above ourselves and we should submit to it. At the end of the day, that's what the Pharisees' problem is. See, the disciples, they saw the signs and they didn't see the one who gave the signs. The Pharisees, they see the one who gives the signs and they hate him. Why? Because they realize he will change everything about their lives if they submit to him. Now the last question we see is going to come at the very end for people who are not going to understand Jesus. And it comes through a lot of questions. We're actually going to see eight questions in total in this scene. So we're back into the sandwich. So we got the bread, we got the meat, we're back to the bread. It's funny because it's literally about bread. Verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And so here's the scene. The disciples, they're back in the boat after they've dealt with the Pharisees, and they're nervous. They're worried. We only got one, one loaf of bread. What are we going to do? And if that doesn't tell you they don't realize who Jesus is, I don't know what else will. <laughs> I mean, Jesus, who just fed 20,000, just fed 4,000 people, and we're like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do, Jesus? And listen to what Jesus says. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, what in the world? What does that mean, leaven? Leaven comes from bread. And you're saying leaven of the people? Leaven of the Pharisees and leaven of Herod? Quickly describe. Leaven is a sign or a symbol 
of sin in the Old Testament. So Israelites, on the Day of Atonement and on the Sabbath and other celebratory festivals, what they would do to signify that they were setting themselves apart from sin is they would take all the leaven out of their bread to say, we are not going to be sinful. Now, obviously, that didn't quite work for Israel. It doesn't work for any of us. But it's a symbol of sin. But then you say, what about the Pharisees and Herod? Why is he saying the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? What is the sin that the Pharisees and Herod all have in common? Well, think back to Herod. Earlier in Mark, Herod hears about the stories of Jesus and these rumors that come about. Maybe it's Elisha. Maybe it's a prophet of old. But Herod, what does he say? It's none of those. It's John the Baptist raised from the dead because he's got a haunted conscience, right? But Herod is not buying into Jesus. Herod's heard that Jesus is bringing a kingdom and Herod rules a kingdom. There is absolutely no way Jesus is going to take over Herod's kingdom. And the Pharisees, what do you see? They hate Jesus. They're not believing in him. So what's the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of, the, uh, leaven of Herod? It's unbelief. And the disciples, just imagine the scene. One loaf of bread and they're saying, what are we going to do? Jesus, do not unbelieve. Do not disbelieve. Why are you so scared? And they began discussing, this is verse 16, and they began discussing with one of the fact that they had no bread. And so now it's not even that they have one loaf, they have no bread. And Jesus is going to ask them a barrage of questions. We can kind of categorize them in verse 17 through 18 as almost heart questions. And then 19 through 21 are questions about the loaves. But there's eight questions here in total. Look with me at verse 17. What are we going to do, Jesus says, and Jesus aware of this said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Jesus takes this deep into the person and he says, guys, this is nothing to do with bread. This has to deal with, do you know who I am? Do you understand that I am God incarnate, the Messiah who came into the earth, to rule heaven and earth. And I'm the one that you should be seeing as the one who gives bread. Instead, you can't take your eyes off the bread. This is me most of the time, honestly. Most of the time, I'm focused on how many people do we have in church today? What was our outreach event like? What's financially speaking? How's it going to go? Or even speaking right now, how's this business meeting going to go later? And it's so easy to worry and set our minds on those things. When Jesus just wants to say, why? I'm the bread. I'm the one you search for. I'm the one you delight in. Not all the other things. The other things are great, and they're in addition. They're wonderful. 
But Jesus is the true bread, and he's going to sum it up for us like this. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And he said to them, 12. And the seven and the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Two things, and we'll close by looking at one more text. The disciples, they didn't understand. Jesus, one, supplied more than they ever needed. He says, you're worried about one loaf. How many leftovers did we have? And they're worried. But more than that, they never actually got, the loaves were all about eating the true bread. And that's always been God's original intention. The reason why the disciples missed it and the reason why we will misunderstand long run is always if our intention, our goal, our purpose, the motivation of our Christian life is to do Christian things, to look Christian, to be at church, to have our needs met by Jesus instead of Jesus actually himself. I want to look at one text from Deuteronomy to sum this up. Deuteronomy 2, verse 7. This text comes in the wake of Israel being in the wilderness for 40 years. Some of you might remember the story of Israel being in the wilderness for 40 years. They weren't pleasant. They had nations attacking them. They were hungry. They didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. They had idolaters in the camp. God destroyed part of the camp at one point. Then he rebuilt the camp. Then he destroyed it again. They were not good years. But listen what Deuteronomy 2.7 says in reflection upon those years for Israel. And it's the same point this text in Mark 8 is trying to make. Did Israel lack anything in those 40 years when they were being destroyed by nations and destroyed by God and when they didn't have any bread to eat? For Yahweh your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through the great wilderness these 40 years. Yahweh your God has been with you and you have lacked nothing. That sums up what Mark 8's about. Mark 8 is not about having bread. Mark 8 is not about looking really religious on the outside and being really religiously zealous. It's about recognizing that our portion, our delight, our treasure is in Christ. And knowing Him is enough. Knowing him is always enough. So what did they not yet understand? Jesus was their bread. Do not substitute Jesus for some other manufactured bread. There's a lot of other great things in the Christian life. Um, Great things that you get to experience in life like family, friends, This whole thing, this is good, gathering together. But the greatest treasure is Jesus. So let's enjoy him. 
Let's pray. Jesus, you have said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Make us live by your words. Make us delight in you. Lead us to the fountain of everlasting water where we will be satisfied for all eternity. I pray that our joy, our hope, would not be in what you give us, but would be truly in you. Lord, we love and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.